I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name's Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. It's crucial to pause and reflect on the significance of empathy, connection, and emotional understanding particularly in the context of mental health and suicide prevention. We live in an era where technology has connected us in more ways than ever, yet the human connection, the one that truly matters, often eludes us. We find ourselves in a paradoxical situation. Amid all the likes, shares and comments, genuine emotional understanding and empathy can be in short supply. It's as if we've forgotten how to truly connect with each other on a deep emotional level. Mental health is a topic of immense importance in today's society, and rightly so. It affects every one of us, directly or indirectly. It knows no boundaries of age, race, gender, or socioeconomic status. It's an invisible battle that millions wage within themselves every day, with many suffering in silence. Empathy is the antidote to this silence. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoe and feel what they feel. It's about showing that you genuinely care, that you're willing to listen without judgment, and that you're there for them when they need you the most. When it comes to suicide prevention, empathy is not just a virtue. It's a lifeline. Studies have shown that people who feel understood and connected to others are less likely to entertain thoughts of ending their own lives. It's a reminder that we have the power to save lives simply by being there by showing someone that they matter. But empathy alone is just not enough. We need to also foster a culture of emotional understanding. This means educating yourself and others about mental health, breaking the stigma that surrounds it and creating safe spaces for people to open up about their struggles without fear of judgment. It means recognizing that mental health is as important as physical health and that seeking help is not a sign of weakness. It's an act of strength. In today's fast-paced world, we often overlook the impact of slowing down and connecting with each other on a human level. We've become experts at superficial interactions, but we're missing the depth that makes us truly human. Dr. Mark Goulston is an American psychiatrist, keynote speaker, executive coach, and consultant who's worked with Fortune 500 companies, universities, and other organizations. Mark was a UCLA professor of psychiatry for over 25 years. He's a former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer. He's the author of nine books and the host of the highly rated podcast, My Wake Up Call. Mark is the inventor and developer of the process called surgical empathy, whereby using targeted and focused empathy, one's able to break through to people and feel them from internal emotional and psychological blocks that can impair their functioning, well-being and satisfaction in life. Mark, thank you so much for making the time to come on my podcast. And as I was saying to you earlier, apologies for all the back and forth. I I, I appreciate you even coming on after I've I've stuffed you around a little bit before this. So (laughs) it's good to be finally sitting here talking to you. 
Well, I'm glad to be here. Uh, let's, uh, I've been looking forward to it. Appreciate it. So I guess let's jump into it. Before we get into more of a conversation, can you give our listeners a background on yourself, the work you do, and how you came to be doing what you're doing today? Well, I'm, uh, I, I've been a psychiatrist for 45 years, and I came to be doing it because when I was in medical school, I dropped out of medical school twice for un untreated depression. And, uh, and they usually give you a, a year off because it's not that unusual to take time off. Uh, people are stressed out. And I took time off, came back, and then the depression came back. And at that point, the, uh, the medical school wanted to kick me out because they were losing uh, matching funds. And, you know, and as I looked at myself through their eyes, I can understand. I might have wanted to kick me out. So I met with the dean of the school, and he cared more about funding. And, uh, and then he sent me over to the dean of students who cared more about students because I think he was worried that when the dean of students told me that they were going to kick me out, that I could do something self-destructive. And I'm not so sure that that wasn't true. And so I, I believe a miracle happened. Uh, the, the dean of students met with me, and he said, I have a letter from the main dean. You better read it. And the main dean said, we met with Mr. Goulston. I spoke to him about alternate careers. And I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw, which is a euphemism for let's get rid of him. You know, he's never going to be a doctor. Mm. And I think I'm, I'm not really a, a religious person, but I think a miracle happened because when I said to the dean of students, what does this mean? He said, you've been kicked out. And I kind of cratered in front of him. I mean, I folded over and I felt something wet on my eyes and I kept looking at my eyes like this. And I thought it was blood, but it was tears. And then he hit me with the trifecta of hope. So I came from a background. Uh, my parents were depression age. Your value is what you can do in the world. Your value is what you're worth. And if you can't do much, you're not worth much. So that was a little bit about where I was. Mm -hmm. And so this is what he said to me. He said, you didn't mess up because you're passing somehow but you are messed up. But if you get unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. And I'm not understanding what he's saying. And my tears start being tears because he's being compassionate. And then he hit me with the, what I call the trifecta of hope. He said, even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. So he saw value in me for just being me, not for what I did. That was the first leg of the trifecta. And then he said, you have something in you that we don't grade in medical school. And you have no idea how much the world needs that. And you're not going to know how much they need it until you're 35. But you're going to make it till you're 35. So he saw a future for me that I didn't see. And then at that point, I'm crying with just this love in a future. And then he said, look at me. And he pointed his finger at me and he said, you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. And I think if he had said, uh, call me if I can help you because of my pride, foolish pride, I probably wouldn't have called him and I might not be here today. 
but because he gave me unconditional love, he saw a future for me that I didn't, and he went to bat for me against the whole medical school. He said, there's something about this one. We're going to give him a second chance. So I didn't think I had anything going for me because, you know, I really couldn't do much at that point. And I took a year off and I went to a place called the Menninger Foundation, which is a very famous psychiatric institute. It was in Topeka, Kansas, and now it's in Houston. And these were schizophrenic farm young men and young women. And I grew up outside of Boston and I could reach them. And I asked the psychiatrist there, I said, is this legitimate? They said, what? I said, I just walk around with them in the middle of winter, in the middle of snow, and is this legitimate? It's not like anything in medical school. And they said, no, it's legitimate, and you've got a knack. So I held on to that, took the year off, came back, finished medical school, then finished training in psychiatry at UCLA. And one of my mentors there was one of the pioneers in suicide prevention. He started the suicide prevention centers in Washington and Los Angeles. And uh, he started referring me, after I finished training, patients that nobody else wanted to see because they were still suicidal, but they had to be discharged, and you couldn't keep them there forever. And I just paid it forward. Unconditional love, future, and I wouldn't let go of them. And one patient actually crystallized the way I look at the world, the way I listen into people's eyes. This was a woman named Nancy. She'd made three or four suicide attempts before I saw her. She'd been in the hospital several months, every year, for several years. And I didn't think I was helping her. But there I was seeing her for six months. And, uh, and once a month, I would moonlight at a state hospital, meaning I would cover for the other psychiatrists. And sometimes you're sleep-deprived. And when you're sleep-deprived, you know, your body does kind of weird things. So there it is a Monday. I've been seeing Nancy for six months. I don't think I'm helping her. So if you're me and I'm Nancy, she'd be like this. And so I hadn't slept for 24 hours. And as she's seated with me, all the color in the room turned to black and white. And I'm looking out, and the room is black and white. And then I get these chills. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. Now I'm a medical doctor. I'm a psychiatrist. So she's not looking at me. So it wasn't rude. I did a neurologic exam on myself. She's like this, and I'm going like this and like this, seeing them if I'm having double vision. I'm tapping my elbows, tapping my knees. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her eyes and feeling the dark night of the soul. And it was cold. And because I was sleep-deprived, I blurted out something that I normally wouldn't say. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of the pain. And I thought, I think I just gave her permission to kill herself. I remember saying to myself, don't write that in the medical record. Don't write that one down. And Nick, that was the first time, that was the first time she looked at me and she grabbed onto my eyes like I'm grabbing onto your eyes. And I thought she was going to say, thanks for understanding. I'm overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? 
And she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of all this pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiles. And I grabbed onto her eyes, because this was the first time we made eye contact. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to throw treatments at you unless you ask for them, because you've been through all kinds of treatments, and most of them haven't worked. Would that be okay? And she looked at me. She said, I'm listening. And then I leaned into her eyes like I'm leaning into yours, and I said, this is what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to find you wherever you are. And when I find you, I'm going to keep you company because I don't want you to be there alone anymore. Would that be okay? And then her eyes teared up, and we turned a corner. And that was the birth of something that I've given a name to in the last three years called surgical empathy. So you ask how we do what we do. I, I, none of my patients died by suicide in 30 years. And I use surgical empathy. Wow. And it was very simple. And I'm trying to teach the world. When people are suicidal, and I've seen a bunch, uh, I wrote an article called Why People Kill Themselves. It's not depression. I wrote it after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died. 300,000 mm -hmm. views. And I said, it's not depression. Depression contributes to it. Loss of job contributes to it. Loss of marriage contributes to it. But what they all feel at the end is they feel despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, they feel unpaired with a reason to live. Hopeless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless. And when it all lines up, pointless. And they pair with death to take the pain away. And they form psychological adhesions, not attachments. An adhesion is like what happens after surgery when organs get stuck together. And a psychological adhesion doesn't listen to reason or insight. Surgical empathy can cut the adhesion when they feel felt. And when they feel felt and less alone in hell, they start to cry. So you've given me a long leash and you haven't interrupted me, but I'll pause there. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends and follow me on Instagram at Nick Brax. I really appreciate your ongoing support. Well, I haven't interrupted because it's so important what you're saying and so fascinating. And we, I think, you know, what I'm taking from this and probably from what I've seen in my work as well, is probably one of the biggest problems we currently face when it comes to this area of mental health is this lack of empathy and this lack of the ability to, to feel empathy to often people, if they haven't been through or had any experience with mental health. I mean, I, I always say the biggest gift that I had was going through in my early twenties, a very dark time and coming out of it because I really made note of it and try to remind myself all the time that you just don't know what someone else is going through and, you know, it's, it's real. And if we haven't felt it, we can dismiss it. So would you say that's one of the biggest issues like you're talking about here? You know, we need to teach people how to 
become more empathetic and people just, you know, just want to be heard. I think it's such a powerful message you've just said. Well, something that I'm trying to teach the world. So the book behind me, Just Listen, has done pretty well around the world. It actually became the top book on listening in the world. And I spoke in Moscow four years ago with a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And something that I've been trying to teach the world, and I'm going to do an experiment on you and tell me if something shifts inside you. Okay? Are you game? Okay. Um, I'm up for it, for sure. Underneath people listening to you, whether it's one-on-one like this, one-on-five, or one-on-five-hundred, they're listening for something underneath they're listening to you. And they may not even be aware of it consciously. But if you know that they're always listening for something, and you can just be curious about it with an open beginner's mind, they'll lean towards you. So here's the experiment. You've been doing a great job of listening to me. But if I focus on what you might be listening for underneath you listening to me, tell me if this is close to it. You want to honor your listeners' and viewers' time by not wasting it. And one of the ways to honor it is to give them information, give them tools, give them tactics, give them insights that are immediately usable by them to make their lives better, to give them hope when they don't have it. You may also be listening for the so-called best-selling author who is just terrible. You have to protect your listeners and viewers from him or her. You have to afterwards, uh, uh, I, just did, I just did an interview on another podcast, and we're going to have to go back to the guest and say, maybe we can do it again, but I don't think we can use it. So you're listening for ways to not waste your listeners or viewers' time. And you want to honor their trust and confidence in you to bring them value. And you don't want to do something that wastes their time or hurts them. So is any of that true? Oh, that's true for sure. So how are we doing? Yeah, well, it feels, like you said, it feels feels more heard, feels more uh, understood, I guess, from you saying that. And... Yeah, like you said, it's very accurate, not wanting to waste their time, not wanting to waste your time, you know, wanting to really make sure I can, you know, give you the best experience that I possibly can in, you know, another part of that. When I would see suicidal patients, I was very fortunate. A a uh, program I was supposed to, a fellowship I was supposed to go into fell apart. So I just finished training and just put up uh, an office. And again, I had this uh, mentor who would refer these suicidal patients, but I didn't have to check boxes. See, if I'd gone into an institution, I would have to check boxes, protocols, fill out forms. I mean, I filled out forms, but, but when I would look at people and I would look into their eyes, their eyes were screaming out at me, not their voices Their eyes were saying, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. So I had a choice. I could hide behind the boxes 
or throw them away and just let them take me with their eyes wherever they needed to take me. And I think you can do that with audiences. I think you can do that when you're auditioning. Whoever you're auditioning for, what they're listening Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before is, are you going to be the actor that they go back to their boss and says, I think we found the one. I think we found the unicorn. And that's what they're listening for. They're not listening for you to convince or perform. They're, they're listening for you to connect with them when they didn't, they didn't even know they were reaching out to you. And if you learn to just listen into people's eyes, it's always there. I have a radio show on UK Health Radio called Hurt Less, Live More. Because yeah. I believe that the I believe that the world is in a global oh, oh. pandemic of avoiding hurt and fear and running into eating, drinking, video games, anger. And and what happens is the hurt gets worse. So the name of our show is called Hurt Less, Live More with JJ and Dr. Mark. It's a weekly radio show on UK Health Radio. And we just have conversations with people, not unlike the one you and I are having, not knowing where the heck it's going to go next. I love that. I love that. And, and so how big, how big of an issue would you say this is? You know, in, you, would you say the majority of people or percentage-wise how many of us are facing, you know, that blockage, addiction, you know, unhealthy coping mechanisms, all these different things we're discussing? Well, I'd, I'd say it's close to 90%. And here's one of my issues with technology. Change. I like technology. Yeah. I love technology. Uh, but the, the tech giants, Bezos, Musk, Jobs, uh, Zuckerberg, they're not that great at relating to people emotionally. No. But they're, but they're great at addicting people to adrenaline, excitement. Mm -hmm. and, and here's a little bit of neurochemistry. You know, dopamine is pleasure. We all want pleasure. And you can feed dopamine through excitement and adrenaline. But then you got to keep feeding it. You go through an adrenaline crash, you got to keep feeding it. There's another way to feed dopamine, and that's through oxytocin. That's through connecting emotionally. That's through feeling close. And, and here's an anecdote. I'm a little embarrassed about it, but it's a decent anecdote. I was walking through Santa Monica, California several years ago. And sadly, you can't go for a walk in Santa Monica, California and not pass homeless people. 
And I was there walking, you know, stuck in my grandiose head, master of the universe, uh, uh, whatever I was thinking about. And I passed this homeless man. He was about six inches taller than me. He'd had a stroke. So one of his arms, his left arm was paralyzed and he was just dragging it by his side. He was in bedroom slippers that were torn. And he was just walking, doing the best he could. But he wasn't intruding. There weren't signs. He wasn't pushing things in your face. He was just doing the best he could. It was kind of noble. So I pass him, thinking all these grandiose ideas I'm having and how I'm going to change the world. And I get 25 yards past him. And it suddenly hit me, the nobility of his pain. So I walk back, and I get in front of him. And I put a $50 bill in his right hand. His good hand. And he lifts it up. And he can't believe it. And he looks at, he looks at me. And then he looks at the $50 bill. And then he looks at me, and then he starts to cry, and he says, I love you. And I said, I love you. That was the best $50 I spent in a long time. And I remember that, but I, but I don't remember my grandiose master of the universe thoughts that I was having. That's, that's oxytocin. That's dopamine. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to learn more, I've released my first book, Move Your Mind, How to Build a Healthy Mindset for Life, where I talk about my own journey with mental health and share tips from experts on how to maintain a healthy mindset. You can buy the book on Amazon or through my website at nickbrax.com slash book. I love that example. That's a, that's a great example. And it, it is, it's a, it's a scary world that we currently live in. Like you're saying, because where this is everywhere, we wake up in the morning and before you get out of bed, you're exposed to it and it's just so addictive. And it's like, and even when you, I'm trying so hard, the uh, social media for me is the, the biggest one that I'm still trying to wean myself off, but it's so, so addictive. Uh, but like you're saying, it was actually a comment I made to my girlfriend earlier today, um, I was like just lying around, like cuddling her on the couch. And, um, I said to her, it's kind of funny that, you know, this is, doesn't cost any money, something available to us right now. Yet I'm always worrying about, am I enough? What's going to happen in the future? When am I going to finally achieve what I want? Yet, even if I get all of those things, the things that we're doing right now that give us the, you know, that are, are available to us for free and we get joy out of it. It's like a, a, just this weird conundrum where. We actually can just get everything we want right now if we can let go of all of these other ideas. So I have a homework assignment for you and your girlfriend. You ready? Are you game again? This is the third game we're playing. I'm game. I'll have to check with her. I can see her on the couch smiling right now. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I'm sure she will be. She's actually doing a PhD in psychology. So I'm sure she'll, she'll be interested. So you take her aside in the middle of a conversation. So you, you let it come out kind of naturally and you say, uh, I have a question for you. And then you look in her eyes and you say, have I ever made you feel 
that you weren't worth my undivided attention. She's going to say, what? Yeah, I can be kind of distracted. I can be really distracted. I can be self-absorbed. Have I ever made you feel that you weren't worth my undivided attention? We all have. Mm. I don't know what she'll say. And then you keep looking in her eyes and say, tell me about a time when I was at my worst. When you really wanted my undivided attention and there was no way you could get it. And then whatever she says, you may not remember it. You own up to it. You say, I did that. I do that. Mm. You deserve you deserve better. I'm gonna fix it. And I'm sorry. I will I'll take you up on it. So I'll do challenge number three. I will I'll put into practice and I'll report back to you next time next time we speak. <laughs> so I like no, that sounds re- I really like that. I can see the value in what you're saying there. So hundred percent I'll put that into practice and we we finish every episode with five closing questions. Um, these can be just short answers that come to mind or whatever whatever comes to mind. But um, the first one is, what's your best childhood memory that, that comes to mind? This is a little bit pathetic, but I'll say it anyway. Um, my father wasn't that good at getting close. I think it cheated my brothers and my mother out of closeness that he wanted. And I've always had trouble falling asleep. And I remember, and, and he wasn't someone who was particularly insightful. He was a you know, good person, worked hard. And I remember he came into the bedroom and I'm like, I'm hitting bed because I can't fall asleep. And he said, you know, I think if you lie in bed and you can't close your eyes, you can still get rest. Uh, I told you it was, a, it was kind of a sad memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing it, though. No, thank you for sharing it. What, what do you think is the biggest burden on mental health currently in society? I mean, you've touched on this, so I guess in the summary of what we spoke about, yeah, what do you think is the biggest that if you if you had to single out the biggest burden, what would you say is the number one? I think people run away from feeling. Uh, they mean well, but they run away from feeling hurt and fear, and they run into coping mechanisms, <clears throat> which distract them. But all that stuff that you run away from builds up, and then if you don't attend to it. It's going to build up and break through later on in life. And, and I feel for mental health yeah. workers because they have to check boxes. They get a, in 20 minutes, they have to go on to the next person. And they have to justify the boxes that they checked. And, uh, and, and that's not why they went into being mental health workers, because they actually cared about the suffering of their people but they don't have time to really empathize with it with their full compassion. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's, yeah, and I can imagine the frustration of that. 
what is your personal definition of happiness? I'm actually experiencing it now because I, I wasn't geographically close to my grandparents, but I am blessed to be able to see my four grandchildren who are four and under every day. And, uh, and I love my daughters and my son-in-laws, but, but they're busy. They're busy just trying to get them dressed, get them fed, get them whatever. And so when I see my grandchildren, I bathe them with utter delight. So when they look into my eyes, all they see is utter delight, which they often don't see in their parents' eyes because their parents are so busy. And when I bathe them in utter delight, they take a second helping. They'll be working on something, and I bathe them in utter delight, and they go, and I am just bathing them in as much love as possible, and I just hope it goes somewhere deep inside them. That's really beautiful, and yeah, I think it's it's so important because as you've discussed, you know, we don't, we don't get enough of it growing up and it can take a long time to try and find your way back if you don't, as uh, the journey, you know, we've talked about that I'm on. Uh, Two more here. What, what are you most afraid of? Um, I'm afraid for, I'm afraid for the future of those grandchildren because uh, I can see how the world is going to try to seduce them away from wonder and joy into consumption. And they're going to miss out on something really special. Uh, they're going to experience the death of wonder. Yeah. And it's happening everywhere. Well, hopefully it can start to change, but yeah, it's a pretty, pretty heavy sort of thing. So on a more positive note, what are you most proud of? You know, there's a saying about Michelangelo that he looked inside the marble and he saw the angel and he carved away everything until he set it free. So my approach to all the suicidal mm. patients and I've seen is I see hope inside them that they can't see. And I just carved a way to set it free. And something I would like to leave for your listeners, and they may be too young, but write this down. Uh, I'm involved with a couple documentaries. One's called What I Wish My Parents Knew. A very good friend of mine, his son died from suicide five years ago. And he did this documentary because it's what he wished he'd known, but he was too late. And we're rolling it out to 300 high schools, to parents. And when we do the presentation, he talks about his story and all the signs he missed. And I talk about, to parents, here are the four prompts if you're worried about one of your teenagers. You can actually use it with a spouse. Mm. And, and here's the script. If you're worried about a teenager, do this while you're doing an errand. Do not do a heart-to-heart -heart talk with your teenager unless they initiate it. They hate heart-to-heart -heart talks. I mean, it is nails on a chalkboard. Trust me on that. 
And while you're driving or doing an errand, you could say, hey, can I run some things by you? A lot of us parents are kind of worried about our kids, and I'm one of them. Can I just run a few things by you? And again, you're not making eye contact. You're just driving. Here are the four prompts. First one, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life for yourself? And they're going to go, what? Yeah, yeah, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life for yourself? And whatever they answer, just keep them talking. The second prompt, when you feel that way, how alone do you feel? And if they say, uh, 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 fairly alone, surgical empathy would be fairly alone or all alone. Okay, dad. Okay, mom, all alone. Third prompt, and keep them talking. Take me to the last time you felt that. Was it 2.30 in the morning when you couldn't get to sleep and we heard you walking around your bedroom? What was that about? And when they can describe something so clearly that you see it with your eyes, they re-feel it, but they're not alone. Yeah, I couldn't get to sleep. I felt like kicking the wall. What'd you do next? I, I, I looked for cough medicine, couldn't find it. Oh, what'd you do next? I couldn't get to bed. What happened next? The sun rose. Fourth prompt. And if you're lucky, you will have earned eye contact. And you say, look at me. You may pull over to the side of the road and say, look at me. And say, I have a favor to ask you. Whenever you're feeling that way or heading down that road, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my undivided attention or your mom's or your dad's. Because we have a million things in our mind, but there's nothing more important than helping you feel less alone when you feel that bad. And by the way, never think that you're a burden to us. And my proof of that is that when you grow up and you have kids, if they open up to you like you just did to me, it's not a burden, it's a gift. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it is, it's, I, I guess, like so much, many of us growing up feel that we are a burden because we don't get that opportunity or we don't feel like it's our parents aren't educated themselves. So I think that's really, really important what you've just said there and everything. Thank you so much for making the time to talk about all of this and share all of these tools. Um, as a final thing, where, where else can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you and your work or anything else? Well, I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call. Uh, and it's doing pretty well. It's in 40 countries, top 0.5%, and and wide range of people from Larry King to Jordan Peterson to uh, uh, to Chris Voss to Susan Cain, all kinds of people. And then I have a weekly radio show on UK health radio called Hurt Less, Live More with JJ and Dr. Mark. And that uh, broadcast, uh, the episode plays over four times in a week. And we have guests having conversations like you and I are having. And then I have a website, markgulston.com. And if you go to Amazon, you can find my books. Great. Well, make sure to put all of those links in the show notes. So do make sure to check it out. And Mark, thank you again. I'm, yeah, like I said before, uh, really appreciate you making this time. It means a lot. And it's, yeah, I've really taken so much out of this. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for being game. I, I recently interviewed someone on my podcast, and he has a book called Gameness, 
that you need to you need to have game in the way you approach world to the world. So I appreciated you participated in our games. I enjoyed it. I no, I took a lot out of it. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks to Mark Goulston for joining me today for Move Your Mind. Also, a huge thank you to those of you listening. I really appreciate your support. If you'd like to learn more or connect with me personally, visit www.nickbrax.com or send me a DM on Instagram at nickbrax. Please don't forget to click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends, and follow me on Instagram. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.